morning again, everyone. Turn with me, if you would, to <clears throat> Revelation chapter 13. We're going to begin our study of the second beast. And we moved fairly quickly last week through the first, um, the first beast. We're going to slow down a little bit for the second part of this chapter. Um, not because the second part of the chapter is more important than the first part, but there is um, a tremendous amount of application and relevance that we need to understand. So I want to take our time as we go through this. Um, let's ask the Lord to lead us as we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, <laughs> we ask that you would help us to um, step off the path this morning, Lord, to um, sit at your feet as we study your word. Lord, that you would um, feed us, that you would prepare us. We We think about um the words that we just read and Lord they can be troubling and concerning to us and that was the response of your prophet Daniel as you gave him this initial initial vision in Daniel chapter 7 and 8 he was greatly troubled by it we have more information now and we are reminded that um while the world is in turmoil and tumult, you are sovereignly reigning over all of it, and you are in control. You have not relinquished the throne. And we ask that you would cause us to be reminded of that this morning, that we would rest in you, that you would be our Sabbath, that, um, Father, the anxieties of this life would, would fall away as we meditate on your word this morning. We ask for your help. We ask for your grace, that you would empower your church and your people, and that you would help me this morning. We ask these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. All right, last week we looked at the first beast in first verses 1 through 10. We're in Revelation chapter 13. And remember, chapter 12 of Revelation addresses the why of the spiritual warfare. Chapter 13 addresses the how. So chapter 12 gave us the picture of the woman being pursued by the dragon. This is a picture of Satan and the church and the conflict that we have, spiritual conflict that existed. And Mark reminded us in our Bible study that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman would bruise the, the serpent's head meaning the Lord Jesus. So chapter 13 addresses the how. It begins to, to un, unravel for us how Satan makes war against the church. And last week we looked at the first of two beasts that are pictured here in Revelation chapter 13. And remember, Satan has two primary means of attacking the church. One is destruction. The other is seduction. They're his two primary weapons, if you will, against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the, the first beast, which, which represents destruction. That is brute force. The picture of the beast is a picture of an animal. It is untamed, unruly, unclean. And it's a picture of, of brute force and the second beast that we'll look at, we're not going to get 
um, through very much of our look at the second beast, but it's going to un- unpack a picture of seduction for us. These two beasts are in league with one another. They work together. They're birds of the same feather, as we would say. I want to remind you of this and, and encourage you with this. This this study that we're doing has profound real-world ramifications and applications to you personally. As we study the timeline, the time frame of this book, um, the majority of it unfolds between the ascension and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his return. And, and that means that these two beasts that we're studying are concurrent with the time that this is written to the seven churches until the time that the Lord returns. That has application to us. This is not some future state that we don't need to worry about until later. But the ultimate, the ultimate application as I study this that I need to wrestle with, and I hope you will wrestle with as well, is what does it look like for me to be in this world but not of it? What does that look like? How do I go to school? How do I go to work? How do I lead my home? How do I take care of my home and, and do all the things that I have to do in this life without compromising who God has called me to be? Can I fly under the radar when I think about the impact of these two beasts on my life? And the answer to that is a resounding no, by the way. God has not called us to withdraw from this world to some secluded mountaintop although it's tempting but he has called us to be in this world but not of it we're called to be salt and light you cannot be light unless there's darkness you can't be salt unless there is a need for preservation so how, the the question that's resounding to me and for those of us who think we can just fly under the radar and, and keep quiet Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 30, you are either with me or what? There is no middle ground. There is no riding the fence. And so if we think that we can extract ourselves from this spiritual war that we find ourselves in and just lay low until the the battle passes, that's not reality. So how do I conduct myself with integrity? When I ask that question to you, I'm thinking of men like Daniel. Daniel served at the king's right hand. He was in Babylon, the pinnacle of wickedness in this world. And Daniel served the king with integrity. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, teenagers. These were young men. What did, Mark, what did we talk about this morning? Men who were... 20 plus 20 they're in there there's a term for it there were choice men (laughs) these were not men who had lived past their prime these were choice young men but they were young but as i'm thinking about this and and this this chapter that we're studying calls the children of god the saints the church to live with integrity and it's not easy What we're going to talk about is intense pressure that is brought to bear 
on each one of us. And it is very specific. You do not get to get away, away from this pressure if you're a child of God. Think about Joseph, who served the king as well in, in, in Egypt, Pharaoh. How do I, how do I, when I am absolutely surrounded by the enemy and I am under intense pressure to conform and yet refuse to compromise and bow my knee to the gods of this world, how do I do that? Say, well, you just got to be tough. One of the kids falls and hurts themselves. We have a saying in our house, which is be tough. But, but listen, the call there. The call to be tough is not what wins this victory. Many Christians will answer the question, how will I stand when there's intense pressure to conform? And unfortunately, some will say, when it gets really bad, it's okay, I'll get raptured out. Guys, I want to be completely honest and transparent with you. The more I study the scripture, the more adamantly opposed I am to that doctrine, because it's not in here. It's not. The scripture verses that we pull to defend the the doctrine of a secret rapture are applied to the second coming. The open, visible return of the Lord Jesus. And what happens to the church when the church believes that when the going gets tough, God is going to pull us out of here? Now, do you think the enemy has a tactical advantage against the church when the church thinks that it's okay when things get really bad, that I'm going to be pulled out of that. Mark, you read Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans 8 goes on to say, if we read further, what can separate us from the love of God? And it goes through and lists the sword, persecution, tribulation, every kind of trial, health issues, nakedness, um, perils. But we're not supposed to go through that. If some of us were not here at the at the second coming of the Lord Jesus, that is his visible open return when he comes back to judge this world. Why would Peter make this statement? He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That is, it will be a surprise. But when he comes back, there will be no surprise. He says, then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are be dis- are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Now, why would Peter ask that question of, and, and when he says, what, what sort of people ought you to be? Well, who are the you? If you read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it tells you who the you are. It's the beloved. Why is Peter telling us that at the return of the Lord, when when the judgment of the Lord comes back, this world will be dissolved? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Why does it matter if we're not here? Why does that even matter, Peter? But Peter's point is, the beloved will be here, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. It is the saints on this earth who are going through the tribulation and the persecution of the perverted sword of the first beast and the perversion of religion of the second beast that we will see that need to keep their eyes on the coming of the return of the Lord Jesus. And they are hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. They're longing for it. 
for those saints who have died and gone to be with the Lord, they're, they're at peace right now. To be absent from the body, what? Is to be present with the Lord. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this matters to you and I now. It applies to us now. So how do we define the first beast? And I found out I did not do a very good job last week. Because last Sunday night when we sat down as a family, I said, what is the first beast? And I got a lot of blank stares. <laughs> which tells me I've made it too complicated. And by the way, we need to talk about these things. If you guys have questions and thoughts, speak up. Don't be afraid to ask these questions because we need to understand this. It matters to us. So here is a working definition of the first beast, just to refresh our memories. The first beast is the symbolic representation of all the corrupted kingdoms of this world. That is satanically driven states, governments, authorities. Romans 13 calls them the bearers of the sword. The difference here is this beast is a perversion of state power. A perversion of state power. Simply put, the first beast is the corrupt sword. In the context of the seven churches, the wicked beast was who? Who was the corrupt sword at the time of the writing to the seven churches? These were seven real churches who were being locked up, put in prison. It was Rome. And there are multiple manifestations of this beast. When we looked at the, the vision, compared it to Daniel 7, to what John is describing for us in verses 1 through 10 of Revelation 13, it is an amalgamation, a combination, a blending together of all the beasts that Daniel saw in his vision. John knew very well what, what Daniel had prophesied. This is a picture of the system of world governments who are under the, the, the authority and the power of the fall or the wicked ones. They are. When Jesus tempted or when Satan tempted Jesus, what did he do? He took him up and showed him what? All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Why? Because they were all worshiping him. So any government, including ours, by the way, that is not subject, subjected to the confines of God's design that we see in Romans 13 is acting under the direction of the dragon. Let's be clear about that. If a government is acting in disobedience to God's design, they are a they are uh, acting on behalf of the dragon. Well, what do we mean by that? So what are the principles for for governance? Yes, I know we're not supposed to talk about politics. By the way, there is nothing that we can talk about as believers that is not subjected to God's word. Amen. And politics is not, is not exempt. Amen. We need to get past that feeling uncomfortable. You can't talk about politics and religion when you're in polite company. Well, the saints of God have everything subjected to God's word. Therefore, nothing is off the table for our discussion. All things are under the authority of God's word, including government. Romans 13. And I just want to remind you of this. This is there's a difference between oughtness and isness. 
Okay. Romans 13 is a picture of oughtness because what Paul describes as the as government as it ought to be mm-hmm. is not the same as what Romans or the Roman government was. Right. Oughtness and isness, okay? Rulers, he says in verse three, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, in in the context of the church as it lived under Rome, was that a was that a comparable statement? As a Christian, if you said, I my my Lord and my King above all else is the Lord Jesus, did you have a problem living? in the time of Roman government, who's, who thought that the epitome, the tip of the, the pyramid was who? Caesar. You had a problem there if you're a Christian. But Paul says government as it ought to be, those who um, have good conduct should not fear the one who is in authority. He says, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is a servant of God for your good. So a Christian who is committed to following the law of God should have no conflict with his government. True or false? If government is submitted to God and the Christian is submitted to God, should the Christian have any conflict with government none at all none at all they are the servant of god for good but what happens when government perverts its authority well all of a sudden we're in conflict aren't we there's examples of this conflict and by the way paul tells timothy and reminds us first of all first timothy 2 1 through 2 first of all then i urge that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead what? A quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. But Paul says, uh, principle number two in Romans 13, rulers are God's servants to punish evil. That's what government is intended to do. Government is necessary, by the way. Because we live in a fallen world. There are people who do very bad things that must be punished and must be held accountable for those very bad things. That's why God installs government. Verse 4 of Romans 13, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For this reason, or for because of this, you also pay taxes. By the way, that's a, it, it's not a bad thing. Now, there, we can argue about how much is enough and how much is too much. But the point that, that Paul is making is you pay taxes for a very valid reason, which is government is protecting you preserving your God-given rights, as we would say in our common American vernacular, so that we can live quiet and peaceable lives. That's a good thing. But rulers, when they're doing God's work, are punishing evil. What happens when they don't punish evil? Thirdly, civil rulers, and this is incredibly important, civil rulers are subject to the same standard of good and evil 
that the subjects of those governments are subject to. Let me say that again. Civil rulers are subject to the same standard of good and bad as anyone under those civil governments are. Amen. And what are those standards? How do we know if a government is doing what it ought to do? They're abiding by the standard. Paul mentions good and bad over and over in Romans 13. Well, for the Christian he's writing to, the church in Rome, how are they to understand that? How do I define what is good and bad? Do I make up my own rules? No, good and bad, and, and this applies to the government. Make no mistake, why is that? Well, the government's secular. We In, the, in America, we said separation of church and state. Here, hold on a second. Every government is subject to God. When we think of the hierarchy of authority, God is at the top. Government is under God. The family is under God. The church is under God, all of which are subject to Christ. How do, So the government has no right to say, I am not subject to God. I, have, I don't recognize religion. I, I do not abide by your rules. They're out of line. Okay? So we need to understand that. How do we know this? Well, we have biblical principle here. Men of God biblically have held civil authorities accountable for not being in obedience to God's law. You talk about courageous integrity. Here's three examples briefly. And I, I want to encourage you. The, the tendency for us is to withdraw from this conversation, not engage it. We, guys, our country, our civil government, our culture needs us to engage on this stuff. We need to speak up, not, not speak less. And why? Because you want to advance the agenda of your political party? No. Uh-uh. Forget about that. This is about obedience to God's law. John the Baptist, when he went to the king, Herod, in, John, in Luke 13, was not advancing his own political party. In Luke 3, 18 through 20, it says, So with many other exhortations, this is John, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, who? John the Baptist. For Herodias. Who is Herodias? His, brother, his brother's wife. Herod stole his brother's wife. And what did John the Baptist do? Well, I, I, I'm with the church, and there's a separation of church and state, and I'm going to stay out here in the wilderness eating my locust and honey. King, you do what you do. No. He reproved Herod for Herodias, for stealing his brother's wife. And it says in, in Luke chapter 3, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. Are you telling me the church went to the state and said, you are not obeying God's law? Yes, that's exactly what happened. Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Daniel, we find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three, the, the four teenagers. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage, he's, he's angry because not everyone took the knee to worship him. So his little peasant servants come running to him and said, King, King, not everybody's worshiping you. Whatever shall we do? And the king gets angry. His ego is 
is offended. And he commands that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, because he's such a gracious king, answered and said, said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is Daniel 3, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Who is the golden image, by the way? Yeah. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. We'll let bygones be bygones. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Boy, you talk about ego. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar gets put out the pasture, doesn't he? Literally, for that very ego. But listen to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer the king in verse 16 of Daniel 3. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, think about, think about the guts that these young men have. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, they're not being smart alecky here. They're not thumbing their nose at the king, but what they're telling the king very firmly and very bluntly is, king, this isn't even up for debate. We're, we're, there's no argument here. You can tell us all day long, every day to bow down and worship you. And guess what? We can't do it. And, and notice verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These men knew full well what they were doing, and they knew the ramifications. This was a public conversation that they were having with the king. They knew the outcome of this. They would not bow the knee, and the king was not going to back down. His ego was at play. He was not giving up. They knew that the net result of that conversation was going to be a death penalty. And they also did not know definitively that they would be rescued from it. You say, well, it'd be easy to tell the king, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, if you knew that when he put, when he ordered your death sentence, that you would escape that death sentence. That doesn't take much guts. But when you knew that you were going into the fire and, and the, the, the takeaway from these men was, if we die, we die, but we will not bow the knee to, to your idols. Think that's a rebuke to the civil authority? Yes. Acts chapter five, verse 17, the disciples, the apostles, but the high priest rose up and all that were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, here are the, the, the apostles, the disciples in a very bad position. Public authority is saying, Stop preaching. You're irritating the entire kingdom. Stop. 
And to make you stop, we're going to put you in prison. And if you keep doing it, the implication is we're going to kill you. And then an angel comes to them while they're in prison, opens the door and says, go preach. What do you do with that? Talk about pressure. So what did they do? If you listen to the common preacher who exposits Roman 13, they would say, you got to listen to Caesar. The angel said, go to the temple. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The most public place. The angel doesn't say to the disciples, listen, I understand you're under a ton of pressure. Go share the gospel quietly. What does the angel say? You go to the temple where everyone can see you and you preach. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the Senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Houdini. Now, when the captains of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. How many of us, if we were let loose from that prison, would have gotten out of Dodge as quickly as we could? How many of us would have said, you know what, it's time to get out of town? Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Guilty much? But Peter and the apostles answered, listen to this. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, listen, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Does the church have the moral and biblical authority to say to the civil government in the state, thus says the Lord? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is what is missing in our country, in our culture right now is men who will stand up in the pulpit or out of the pulpit and speak up and say, you are in disobedience to God's law. And, and Peter specifically says to these men as they're standing in front of them, there's no assurance that they're going to live. He says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom has given to those whom God has given to those who obey him. What Peter is saying is we fear God far more than we fear you guys. That example is a perfect transition to introduce the second beast. We see the second beast working hand in hand with the first. So we've talked about the first beast is the perverted or the corrupted sword. That is state or civil authority that is not in subjection to God. 
And I would urge you to look anywhere you can on the face of this planet and find me a civil government that is subjected to God. I'll wait. Say, well, how about America? Nope. How about Israel? Nope. There is not a government on the face of the planet that is not under the authority and the power of the beast. Now, God is sovereign over all of that, and he is working through fallen and corrupted governments. We see that as we study through the kings and the chronicles. So how do we define the second beast? The second beast is, is mentioned three times later in Revelation as the false prophet. The second beast is the false prophet. We might call him the propagandist who promotes and deceives with misleading information. He works for the first beast. It re it, the second beast represents a system of all religious seduction. And you guys have heard me say this before. How do we define religion? I've never really liked it when somebody says you're a religious man. Never really cozy with that definition. Because religion is man's attempt to get to God on his own terms. Salvation is God reaching man and saving him on his, meaning God's own terms. There is a world of difference between the two. But religion appeals to the fallen nature of humanity because I do something. I don't care what label, what religion you apply this to. Everyone is the same in this regard. You must do something to get to God. And therefore, anything that is not in agreement with the gospel as declared here in scripture is false gospel, false teaching, and it is the propaganda of the second beast. You say, well, that's a lot. Yeah, it is. And, and I'm not standing here in front of you to tell you that I have it all figured out and that we here at Word of Grace Baptist Church are the only people that have it right. I want you to know this. God is, and as we continue in our study, there is a call from the Lord to come out of her and be separate. In other words, there are people within Roman Catholicism. There are people within every major religion that God saves out and brings into his church. We are here to be part of that redemption as we proclaim the truth. It's not a, a matter of arrogance. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But this second beast represents a system of all religious seduction. Notice the counterfeit here. Just as the Holy Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son, so this beast shines the light of worship onto the first beast. It's counterfeit. The Holy Spirit, the scripture says, works in two ways. Jesus said when he comes in John 16, 8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict men of sin. We see that in the work of regeneration in John chapter 3. And then what else does the Spirit do? He points to the Lord Jesus Christ. In very much the same way, the second beast is attempting to mimic the work of the Spirit of God. The second beast leads humanity into lawlessness, false doctrine, religion, 
by the way, Satan loves religion. There's this concept that Satan is anti. No, he's not. What I want to show you as we as we proceed in this study is that religion comes from him. He loves religion. He will happily have you sit in a Baptist church thinking you did something to save yourself and never bother you about it. He loves it. You say, well, what about Buddhism and Islam and all the other religions? He's happy to have people remain in darkness and deception. But I want you to see this. We see this perverted relationship between religion and the state in full display where? What happened during the crucifixion? We see it on full display during the crucifixion of our Lord. Both beasts working hand in hand. Notice Matthew 27, 1 through 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus. Now, who are the chief priests? The religious establishment of Israel. The chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him, and they led him away, and they delivered him to who? Pilate, the governor. Huh, that's a cozy relationship. John 19, 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Remember, he interrogated Jesus and he found nothing worthy of death in Jesus. And the scripture says from that more, that time on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release us, man, think about what they did to persuade Pilate to murder Jesus. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Boy, they're putting the pressure on Pilate, aren't they? Before it gets back to Caesar that you're allowing uprisings within the people here. Caesar's not going to look kindly on that. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, who is saying this? The Jews, the leaders of the Jews. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. Think about the hypocrisy. As the nation is preparing for the Passover, its leaders are conniving and scheming and plotting to crucify Jesus. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Listen to what the chief priests, the chief priests answered. We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. There are both beasts working side by side. Perfect example right here in scripture. So that's the second beast. It's origin in nature. Paul, or John says in verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. 
this beast comes from the earth rather than the sea. We saw the first beast rise up from the sea. This, this one comes from the earth. What is the picture there? Both land and sea. Where do you go on the earth if you're not on either land or sea? Where's there left to go? The point is, is these, these two beasts have a complete monopoly on worldly authority. There's nowhere you can go. Okay. And I want you to see that this beast, both beasts, but this, both beasts are of this world. The earth and the sea represent the whole or totality of unregenerate humanity and the corrupt systems of this world. And we'll talk more on that later. So what do we mean when we say this beast is from this world? What do we mean by that? Simply this, anything and everything that opposes Christ, the world and its systems are antichrist. Talk more about that later as we progress, but I want I, I want to set the table and help us to understand what the scripture teaches teaches regarding the world because it will help us understand the verse that everybody wants to talk about is near the end of the chapter, the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast. This will help us understand because the irony of the great fear of so many people in our culture to get away from the mark of the beast, they already have it and don't know it. That's how deceptive the dragon is. Five considerations regarding the beast in the world. And I don't know that I'll get to all of them. I am cognizant of time, so I might have to cut it short. First of all, the beast of this world has its own mind. Okay. This is a bad analogy to use because I know many of you are Star Wars fans. <laughs> I did not grow up with Star Wars. I grew up with Star Trek. And I remember, do you guys remember the Borg? Anybody know what the Borg is? What's the Borg? It's this great big square cube where all these people are plugged in. Creepy. I remember watching this when I was a kid and I'm like, man, this is just creepy. Resistance is futile. Resistance is futile. You must be assimilated. And when you're assimilated, yes, I'm seven and nine. When you're assimilated, you automatically get this clammy, pasty look about you. It's like, what happened to skincare once you got assimilated? <laughs> but, but there is, and it touches on something very important. There is this ever elusive pursuit of oneness. And that's what world religions promise, a oneness. I want you to notice the reference to the mind with both beasts. And Daniel touches on this. In Daniel 7, 4, he says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then I looked at its wings were plucked off. And as it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. The second beast, Daniel references in Daniel 8, 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Those that worship the beast, look at the kings that serve the beast, Revelation 17, 12, and the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. Listen, these are of one, what? Mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So I saw this interesting article 
not that interesting, but I, I figured I'd share it anyway from psychology today. And the question that it's writing on is what is mindfulness? Now, if any of you work for a larger company, you have heard the term mindfulness. How many have not heard the term mindfulness? And most of you have heard it in the context of work, haven't you? Admit it. It's okay. Nobody can see you on this recording. But if you work for a big company, you are familiar with these buzzwords. Mindfulness, meditation, Zen, yoga. We're watching a commercial yesterday and Lacey asked me, what is Zen? TV has this commercial and said, enjoy this moment of Zen. They're not pushing religion, are they? It's just this nice, peaceful, natural picture of a dock overlooking an ocean. What could be bad about that? We need to calm down anyway. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, groupthink, all of these things, buzzwords that mean the same thing. You want to conform your mind. That's all it means. And, and this article says this, and you think, well, what does psychology have to do with mindfulness? Good question. Listen, quote, research on meditation and mindfulness is flourishing with a particular focus on well-being outcomes. Another buzzword. However, recent Western accounts of mindfulness depart from Eastern tradition in important ways. For example, one idea that is often ignored in Western mindfulness is the fundamental idea that everything, including the self, is part of the same whole. The, the, this idea of oneness is seen in Eastern traditions such as Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, and Taoism. While ideas of oneness do feature as part of a Western culture, they generally run counter to more dominant individualist Western conceptions of a separate self, and thus are rarely included as part of mindfulness practice. In other words, what they're saying is you Americans are having a real tough time getting with this. But yet we are getting with it. Western conceptions of a separate self and thus are rarely included as part of mindfulness practice, intervention, and research evaluation. This is somewhat surprising given that oneness has traditionally been, been considered to be a consequence of mindfulness and a cause of well-being. In other words, you don't know what you're missing. Until you become part of the one, you don't know what you're missing with your individualism. I'm almost done with this, I promise. William James was one of the first psychologists to recognize the importance of oneness experiences. Quote, in mystic states, we both become one with the absolute, capital A. And we become aware of our oneness. Similarly, Hood, Newberg, and Waldman include oneness in their descriptions of mysticism and enlightenment. Oneness has also been characterized as advanced forms of self-transcendence. Listen to this. It is described as involving dissolved self and self-boundaries. So what is meant by the capital A absolute? Well, in philosophy... It's often specifically metaphysical. The absolute and most common usage is a perfect, self-sufficient reality that depends on nothing external to self. What is it saying? Let me paraphrase this for you. Let me sum it up. The mind of the world says this, the more advanced, the more enlightened, the more transcendent we become, hint, secular humanism, 
By the way, secular humanism, which says no religion at all, aligns perfectly with Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism because it comes from the same mind. The more we are aligned with the absolute through mindfulness and meditation, by the way, mindfulness and meditation, and let me dispel this, there is no Christian yoga. Mindfulness and meditation is communication with demons. Let me just be blunt about that. When they talk about mindfulness and meditation, you're emptying your mind and dumping out the contents of your mind so that you can be tapped into the one. And the voices that you're talking to and communicating are demons. The more we shed our individualism, we come one and our boundaries melt away. I become a law unto myself. And what happens is when I become a law unto myself, I become an antinomianism or an antinomian in mind and practice. When I am a law to myself, all of a sudden I am not accountable for the thoughts of my mind. Jesus said out of the heart proceeds what? Evil thoughts. Every wickedness comes from our heart, including our thoughts. And then what happens? Once we think it, what do we do? We do it. The reason I brought this up is I want I want you to see how this will define for us the mark of the beast. We'll get there. Everyone wants to, to assign the mark of the beast to some technology. And by the way, I'm not saying go get a chip in your hand, okay? But I want you to understand that this is far deeper and greater than we're assigning some physical attribute to somebody. That's We're missing it. What does the scripture say regarding the world's mind? The world's mind is debased and hostile to God. We must understand that. Paul says in Romans 1.28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to what? A reprobate or a debased mind. A debased mind, the word in the Greek means disqualified, failed, rejected, unapproved, worthless. What God is saying, because you have put me out of your mind, there is nothing in your head that is worthwhile. That's what he's saying. And he, in his judgment, gives mankind over to that. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And you, Colossians 1.21, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. I want you to understand something. This is not a novel concept, but thinking is directly related to doing. We think about the mark of the beast. What, where is the mark? The forehead and the hand. Thinking is directly related to doing. An antinomian doctrine and belief leads to what? Antinomian action. If I'm lawless in my mind, I become lawless in my deeds. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Paul calls it the wisdom of this age or the spirit of the world. There is a direct contrast between the spirit of God and the spirit of this world. These two are opposed 
and contrary, they are at odds and at war. You know, if you could envision this for a second, if Christ and the world are playing tug of war, what is the rope? My mind. So the question is, does the Bible tell me how I should think? Yes. You know what else tells me how I should think? The world. I have two competing opposites. I have scripture, Christ, the Father telling me what I should think, and I have the world telling me what I should think. And we are right here in the middle, being pulled in both directions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as he's telling the Corinthians how he came to them and how he approached them, he said in verse 1, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and the power, so that your faith might not rest, listen, in the wisdom of men. The word wisdom in Greek is the word sophos. We get in our English vernacular sophistication, philosophy. What is philosophy? Philo, sophie, love, wisdom. Philosophy is the what? Love of wisdom. Now, there is some good philosophy. For example, as a Christian, I could love the wisdom of God. Would I be wrong in that? But if I am the unregenerate in this world and I love philosophy, what am I saying? I love my wisdom. I love the wisdom of this world. Paul says, I don't come to you appealing to philosophy and the wisdom of this world. I simply come to you to impart the clear gospel message without any add-ons and tack-ons. He says in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Why does the natural man not accept the things of the Spirit of God? Because they are spiritually discerned. The unregenerate cannot discern the things of God. It has nothing, by the way, it has nothing to do with intelligence. Some of the most intelligent people walking the face of the earth are dead in their sins and deny God it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with spiritual life. But Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. So what does scripture say? And I'm, I had five points. I'm only going to finish this first. So don't panic. I'm almost done. I promise. I'll be done in just a couple of minutes. What does scripture say regarding the mind of this world and what we are to think. Paul says in Romans 12, I know all of you have this passage memorized. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How is the church supposed to go to the civil authority and say, abortion is murder. You're wrong in allowing it. 
and speak with any clarity. How do we do that? We have to know the mind of God. Paul says, do not be conformed. The prefix of the word conformed is the word con, C-O-N. It means to join with or together. What is Paul saying? Don't be like shaped to the world. If someone said, I'm putting 10 people in a uh, in a lineup, pick out the Christian, and you are in that lineup, would the people that work with you, the people that go to school with you, the people that live with you, be able to say, that's the Christian. Don't be conformed to this world, shaped to fit, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's not just nonconformity. There are some cantankerous nonconformists who live in a shack in the middle of nowhere that want nothing to do with people because I'm not conforming. There is a sense where we are nonconforming, where we must be. And this is where it takes wisdom and discernment, guys. And this is what I'm, what I'm talking about with understanding the application of this. How do I know where the lines are? How do I know? How do I know where I can go and no further? And how do I know the lines that I'm trying to get as close to without crossing over so that I'm not offending my own conscience, but I'm, I'm way past where God wants me to be? How do I discern that? God's word. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do I get renewed in my mind? By the way, if, if this was not applicable to Christians, Paul wouldn't have told us. Why do Christians need to be renewed in, in their minds? We are fallen. We're sinful. And we're on we're the rope in the tug of war. Paul says in Ephesians 4.17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of of their minds. In verse 23 of Ephesians 4, he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Guys, let me tell you something. If you're not in the word regularly, and it's not easy, I will tell you, I will be the first to admit to you, it is not easy. And I'm not talking about just reading. It is not enough just to skim the scriptures and say, I'm done for the day, I'm good. We're talking about reclaiming our minds, having our minds renewed and renovated. How do you do that? Having to preach or teach is, a, is an immense blessing. It's a lot of work, but it's a blessing. You know why? Because you have to study. You have to. One of the, the biggest fears of my life is to stand in this pulpit and pretend in front of you that I did the work. If I did not do the work, I'm ashamed to stand here and to, to put something out for you. It's like fast food when God says, give them the, 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 the smorgasbord. As teachers and preachers and elders in this church, we are, that doesn't mean we're great preachers. And I'm not saying that, but it means we do the work so that we can bring the word of God to you and you guys can eat. You have to eat. But it can't just be us preaching and teaching. You have to get into the word yourself to have a transformed mind. Because what happens is the world is trying to conform your thinking. 
And in a in a vast majority of the church in our culture today, they have the world is winning. But I have never sat down to study. I promise you this. It takes a good eight to ten hours. My my dad's rule of thumb with preaching was for every hour you preach, and sometimes he went longer than an hour, but for every hour you preach, you need eight to ten hours of study at a minimum. And there are men who are standing in the pulpit that are full time and have more time than that to study. And you can see it in the richness of their preaching. It's a blessing. But for those that are part time in the ministry, trying to take care of our families and and, and feed the flock at the same time, it's difficult. But but I, I promise you this, I've never sat down to study God's word when I got up. And I, I closed my computer. My notes were complete where I said, I didn't get anything out of it. Amen. That was a waste of time. Because every single time, I promise you, my mind is changed. My, I walk away from God's word when I study it and I dig into it. I changed man every time, every time. I promise if you will put the work into God's word, your mind will be changed. And if you want... If you want to understand what it is to be transformed by your mind being renewed, you have to get into God's word. There is no other way. Say, well, I listen to a lot of preaching. Not enough. That's great. You should. But it's not enough. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. I want to give you some practical admonition on how to do that. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there be any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If I were to ask you a question, what did you think about this week? What would you say? Would you be comfortable having every thought that you thought this week put on this screen for everybody to see? I wouldn't be. What meets the qualifications of true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? What meets that qualification? Christ. Mm -hmm. If our minds are on Christ, that meets that qualification. If our minds are not centered on the Savior, the truth of the gospel, we're being led astray. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, watchful, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive. And the word captive there, this would have resonated with the, the Jewish reader, takes you as a spoil of war. Talking about the Babylonian captivity. No one see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, Paul here is speaking very specifically about the Old Testament ordinances, and I want you to understand. Paul says the Old Testament ordinances are the spirits of this world. Now, he's not saying that everything in the Old Testament is bad, but he was dealing with, in the context of this writing, with what we call Judaizers. 
what did the Judaizers want Christians who were converted from Judaism to do? Listen, salvation, Christianity is great, but you got to be circumcised. You have to go back to the old ordinances. And Paul calls them the ordinances of the spirit of this world. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we hold up Judaism as just one simple little slight step away from Christianity. No, it is bankrupt. Because Paul continues in, in verse 17, he says, these are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Modern day Israel is rejecting the substance because they want the shadow. It's of the beast, guys. They're rejecting the Messiah. You say, but they're so close. Yes, but listen, salvation is not a hand grenade. Salvation is not a horseshoe. It's like saying I'm almost pregnant or I'm almost dead. You either are one or the other. You can't be both. You cannot be a born-again child of God and believe that Jesus is not the Son of God who came to die for your sin. You can't. But they're so close. Colossians 2 Corinthians. I'm going to end here. 2 Corinthians 10. I know I've been saying that. 2 Corinthians 10. And I had four more points, guys. I promise. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, listen to this, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. What are the weapons of our warfare? What are our weapons? I saw you guys talking at the back of the truck when we walked in. That's not what Paul's talking about here, guys. <laughs> Ephesians 6. Yes. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up his word, the sword of the spirit. But what do we need the weapons of warfare for? He said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. What was Israel's primary problem as we read about every one of these kings? This king did what was right in the sight of God, but he didn't do what? He didn't get rid of the high places. What Paul is talking about here is taking God's word and attacking the high places. What are the high places and where are they? Where are the high places? Right here. My thoughts. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every, listen, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Is this talking about me taking your thoughts captive? Now, if you say your thought out loud, and that's a bad one, that never happens. But, but what is this talking about? This is the battlefield. This is the battlefield. We keep thinking the battlefield's out there. So no, it's right here. It is right here. And Paul says we're to take the weapons of our warfare and attack the strong. Where is the stronghold? When, when they built a fortress, did they put it in the bottom of the valley? Where did they put it? Put it up. Why? Because it's hard to get gravity. It's hard to go up. It's hard to take a fortress that is built on a mountain, a stronghold, 
It is hard to take lofty opinions because they're way up there. Paul is saying that the weapons of our warfare, the word of God, is what we need to destroy and pull down these strongholds. These are the idols, the gods that I make in my own mind. So how do we do that? How do, I, how do I even know if I have gods in my mind that I am worshiping? Well, if I am not conforming my thinking to God's word, I've lost my ability to what? Discern, right? When I immerse my mind in God's word, my ability to discern becomes incredibly sharpened. You will know what is the good and perfect will of God when you get into his word. So how do we do this? Well, it's first of all, I want you to know it's work. How many how many people grocery shop? Nobody grocery shops? Three of you? You all grocery shop. Come on. Have you ever gone to the fruit aisle when you're in a hurry and you threw stuff in? You get home and you're like, why didn't I look at that? <laughs> the bottom of that cantaloupe is not presentable. I can't eat that. Most of the time, if you are taking your time when you grocery shop and you get to the fruit and the produce, what do you do? You pick it up, you shake it, you might tap on it, you might say, that's ripe, or no, that's not ripe enough. What do you do? You look at every one of these things, you examine them, and you put it back on the shelf, right, for some other unsuspecting person to come along and get <laughs> Or you put it in your cart. When you put that fruit in your cart, what are you doing? That thought is good for me to dwell on. When we are dealing with the thoughts in our mind, and guys, this is hard. You know why this is hard? Because we live in a culture that wants us to, to speed right past the bad stuff and just absorb it. One of the things that's so addicting on social media is scrolling through videos. You ever done it? Scroll, 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 scroll. You're going through them so fast that you're not even thinking about what you're saying. That's by design. When Paul says bring every thought into captivity to make sure it aligns with the standard, what are we doing? We're picking up the fruit and we're saying, hmm, this doesn't meet my standard. What's that standard? God's standard. I have to reject it. You say, well, is that conscious? Are we doing that consciously? The answer is yes. If Are, are you responsible for your thoughts? Yes. Yes. We are not, by the way, we're not victims of our minds. We're not victims of our thoughts. The scripture holds us accountable for our thinking. Why would Paul tell us how to think if we didn't have a responsibility to mind our thoughts? It's work. And sometimes, guys, we get lazy, don't we? We let things come into our mind. We put things in front of our eyes. We listen to things with our ears. This world is never ending. And it's propagation of false doctrine and false teaching and error. It wants us to conform we're like the boat on the river. We're either going downstream or we're swimming upstream. And it gets hard to paddle upstream all the time, doesn't it? It's easy to go with the flow. This world, the beast of this world has its own mind. And that is where the battlefield lies. Yes, there are physical ramifications to that. But I want you to understand our battle as believers is in 
our minds. And God has called us to have our minds conform to his word. And I must examine every thought that I dwell on. My mom had a saying many, many years ago, and it stuck with me. You know, those old sayings that our parents always repeated. Well, they did that so that when they died and were no longer with us, we'd remember them. And I do. You can't stop the seagull from flying over your head, but you can stop it from nesting in your hair. We're overwhelmed with seagulls bombing us, trying to steal our lunch out of our hands while we're sitting on the beach. We're overwhelmed with thoughts every single day. But what, what do we allow to nest in our hair? Shoo them away. But it is active work, the Spirit of God leading and guiding us in obedience to his word to meditate and to think about what is right, what is pleasing to God. And if we're not actively doing that, our mind is being conformed to this world. And if you say right now, my mind is not conformed to this world, and you're simultaneously not regularly studying God's word, I don't believe you. I don't. The question that we must ask ourselves this morning is what, where is my mind? Some of us think we've lost it. Where is our mind? Is it being conformed to this world or is it being transformed? Is it otherworldly? Is it being renewed by God's word? We'll uh, we'll have to stop there, guys. I apologize for running long. I had obviously no concept of time when I put my notes but I want to ask you and challenge you this morning is, is really the question is, where is my mind? Is it conformed to this world or is it conformed to God's word prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder and the challenge that we have of, of scripture to be renewed in our minds. Think about the song that we just sang, Lord, and how bright this world looks to us. But if we turn our attention and fix our gaze on you, this world dims. And Lord, we we need to have this world dimmed in our vision. We need to be reminded of the fact that this world will soon pass away. But our time with you is forever. I pray that you'll prepare us for that time. That you'll help us this week as we as we focus on you. Help us, Lord, in our, as our in our time with you and our study of your word that you would. Help us to fight that battle and be victorious in that this week. We ask for your help and your oversight over this church family. Help us to love each other as we ought to. Bless our fellowship this afternoon. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.